The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language. Okay, everybody, lie down on the floor and keep calm. Sunday, the 21st of June, 2015, Donald Trump demonstrates some modern thinking. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words. Former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd submits to a Voight-Kampf test. Well, I'm a human being, just like you. Um, I sleep, I dream. And Senator Jackie Lambie lays down the law on renewable energy. If you think you can stop the world's climate from changing by making pensioners pay more for their energy, building wind farms and mandating renewable energy targets, then you are worse than deluded. You are dangerously deluded and you should be locked up. Yeah, you tell them, Senator Jackie Lambie, you lock them up. This is the 9pm planet of fascist delusions and it's also the solstice. Well, hello, boys and girls. Hasn't it been a weird few weeks here on planet Earth? Actually, not all of it's been weird. I found some of it quite refreshing, and it certainly makes a big change from the winter is coming mood of the the last episode. I will get to some of those more positive points in a bit. But yeah, the rest of the stuff has been batshit insane, right? I mean, here in Australia, the government has decided to create a wind farm commissioner. Their job will be to handle complaints about wind turbine noise, and there's going to be a new scientific committee to investigate, yet again, the alleged health impacts of wind farms. Now, this is despite pretty much every single scientific study that's already been done, showing that there's no such thing as this syndrome. And when you think about it, Anyone who's actually done any high school science has the knowledge and skills to work through this. If wind turbines did cause health problems through infrasound, then people living close to other persistent low-frequency sounds would also get this syndrome, right? And if it was louder stuff or more persistent stuff, the symptoms would be worse, like people who live near railways or near heavy traffic roads, or near gas turbine power stations, or, you know, in cities in fucking general. I mean, all of these things make more noise, and there's been plenty of these things around for, you know, a couple of centuries now, so why haven't we noticed this problematic syndrome before? I think part of the problem is that people in cities don't necessarily realise how much noise they make. Um, and I kind of noticed this oh, when back last century sometime, well, when I was significantly younger, and I happened to be sitting at the base of an ancient eucalyptus tree in the Adelaide Hills uh, late one night. It was a beautiful night, actually. It was quiet, clear skies. I was looking at the stars. I was looking out over the city at the twinkling lights and, and just having a quiet time. But in that midnight quiet you could hear the city as well as just seeing it. I mean, there was this constant, low, pervasive rumbling noise. It wasn't the 
late night traffic noises of car horns and sirens that you hear when you're in the city, or at least that you hear when you're watching a film and they show a city, and this is the cliched sound. Now, this was uh, 10 kilometres, 12 kilometres away, so it was this rumbling porridge of sound. And it got me thinking about what the appearance and growth of the city must have looked like from the perspective of that tree, that century-old tree. What would have it looked like if you operated on that time scale? So I thought about this. You know, a century before that night, I'm not sure exactly which year it was, but I'll pick um, 1881 because there was a census in that year. And the population of the entire colony of South Australia was 275,344 people, quote, excluding Aborigines. Yeah, because the blackfellas weren't counted as, you know, actual people then. I don't think it was until 1967 they were, was it? That's pretty poor behaviour, Australia. Anyway, 275,000 people in the colony. Adelaide would have been, I don't know, 100,000 people, 120,000. Uh, But, of course, growing fast. And it continued to grow with more and more people. And those people chopped down more and more trees. There was more and more noise. You know, horse and cart were replaced by trains and cars. And then, you know, aircraft came on the scene. And the city got brighter as well. Originally, lamps and candles uh, were were, uh, replaced by gaslight. And then by electric lighting, which got ever more powerful. And the city expanded north and south along the coastal plain, but also east towards the Adelaide Hills. And from the tree's perspective, the city must have looked like a cancer. You know, it was just growing relentlessly, surging towards the Adelaide Hills and destroying all of tree kind in its wake. That low rumbling porridge of sound must have sounded like impending doom. You know, that night, I really understood the tree's perspective on this. And okay, maybe it was the acid talking, but seriously, anyone who thinks that a few bloody wind turbines would cause widespread medical problems that aren't reported in those cities, which are louder and have been around longer, has got to be pretty fucking uh, misinformed. And when you look at these health problems, there's actually more than 200 different symptoms that have been blamed on wind turbine syndrome, and some of them, some of them are just vague. Uh, a definitive list has been compiled by the first Dog on the Moon Institute, and it was published today. Hello, patriots. Welcome to First Dog on the Moon's Guide to Modern Living. I'm Walkley Award-winning cartoonist for The Guardian Australia, First Dog on the Moon. In honour of the soon-to-be-appointed Wind Farm Commissioner, the First Dog on the Moon Institute proudly presents all 244 symptoms of wind turbine syndrome, as collated by actual researchers at Sydney University. These are all true things people have reported. I'm not just making it up like I usually do. And because this is Radio National, we present them here without judgement in the form of a poem. If you live near a wind farm, you may find you have the following symptoms. 
You have a lack of concentration, different sorts of palpitation, painful eardrum perforation, suicidal ideation, this weirdy kind of lip vibration, it buggers up the whale migration, you have painful urination, your ageing is accelerated, PTSD is aggravated, cows and chickens born mutated, triglycerides are elevated, weight gain, weight loss, excess sleep, birth defects in all your sheep, you may be afflicted by, bleeding ears and cows that die, lose your bowels, fall off your horse, confused fatigued and then of course you're suffering from nervous thinking also from excessive drinking all the crickets disappear lots of folks get diarrhea then there's that pain in your ear eyes too dry worms all die all emotions running high cows abandoned their own calves piglets dying too much crying cardiovascular disease feels like you're covered in fleas some develop allergies death depression sinusitis stress staring blankly and pruritus inflamed guts spastic colitis you will feel anxiety noise hypersensitivity and then a loss of energy sheep's wool is poor quality hypocampal atrophy immunodeficiency discord in your family stomach ulcers upset sheep night sweats strokes and disturbed sleep stomach acid problems speeching cataracts and dolphins beaching respiratory tract infection arcing teeth and indigestion you'll get pericardial fitness and something french called meniere's sickness you find your cows become aggressive your collagen becomes excessive asperger's work asthma too, popping ears and problem poo, you might find difficulty reading, diabetes, problems breeding, inflammatory bowel disease, laboured breathing makes you wheeze, it even kills off all the bees, and this one bloke's dog got epilepsy. <laughs> oh, some dogs just stare at the wall, refuse to work or chase a ball, and there are dogs with itchy ears who chew small stones and piss in the living room, the little bastards. Paralysis and muscle twitches, leukaemia and skin that itches, problems with relationships, dying goats, vibrating hips, yawning, headache and sore legs chickens won't lay any eggs, kids act bad, their hearts affected, different cancers are detected, car sickness gastro and chest pain, even tumours in the brain, hypertension, herpes too, maybe you are someone who gets atherosclerosis or eyeballs that are really sore and has to pee a whole lot more, conjunctivitis and general malaise, crab metamorphosis suffers delays that's true, dry retching, panic falling down, losing hair, that makes you frown, losing confidence as well and muscle tone, then your glands swell, hemorrhoids and painful hips, peacocks in relationships have problems. I swear that is true. There's nausea, lymphoma too. Cows act as if electrocuted, air and water both polluted. The worms get up and leave the dirt. There's dizziness and your breasts hurt. Loss of hearing, heart attacks, clubfoot horses, painful backs. You might get the diagnosis. You've got multiple sclerosis. Your period comes every week. Now that's enough to make you shriek. Increases in violent crime, frantic scratching all the time. Your emus die, you grind your teeth, sores on your feet, on top, beneath. It interferes with your pacemaker. The shoulder pain's enough to break a man and then to bring him low. Though that could be the vertigo. How many's that? I just lost count. There really is a huge amount. But anyway, we're out of time. So here's a few that do not rhyme. Confused echidnas, litters of unhealthy kittens, and my personal favourite, visceral vibratory vestibular disturbance. Don't go catching that one, patriots. Thank goodness we're spending money on a wind farm commissioner. This has been First Dog on the Moon's Guide to Modern Living, proudly brought to you by the First Dog on the Moon Institute. 
thank you to The Guardian, Australia's award-winning, Walkley award-winning cartoonist, First Dog on the Moon, and ABC Radio National Sunday Extra for that audio. The list of symptoms and signs of wind turbine syndrome was actually put together by Simon Chapman at the University of Sydney, link on the website. There's also a link on the website to a report debunking one of the most widely cited studies, well, widely mentioned in news stories and other non-scientific places, which was done in 2014 by acoustician Stephen Cooper. Cooper found a correlation between infrasound emitting from turbines at Cape Bridgewater in Victoria and sensations felt and diarised by six residents of three nearby homes by identifying a unique infrasound wind turbine signature, recording it as present in the homes, and linking it to sensations felt by the residents. Mr Cooper's research has received international attention. It may have received international attention, but really it shouldn't have. Did you hear those numbers? Six people in three homes. And they were recording sensations in their diaries, feelings, and... The idea was, well, were they recording these feelings at times the wind turbine was making sounds? And some later research, this is the thing I've linked to on the website, nearly half of those reports um, were written during times when wind speeds were low or the wind farm wasn't even operating. Now, I have heard in the media that Stephen Cooper is on record as saying this wasn't a scientific study and no one was ever pretending that it was. But you've got to wonder what the actual point of it was. Well, perhaps perhaps this week we did find out, right? We are now getting that report being one of the most quoted things going into the Australian Parliament's quote thinking unquote on the issue. And we're now going to waste taxpayers' money setting up a commissioner whose main job is to listen to people tell him about fantasy science as part of a political trade-off because, I don't know, what, the government doesn't have the spine to tell people they're wrong? And this this really got up my nose. I mean, it's been well established, I would have thought, that wind turbine syndrome is bullshit. And I, I wasn't the only one who... Uh, was frustrated by this. Former Disability Commissioner Graham Innes has blasted the government's plans um, when he says "Ah, there's no full-time Disability Commissioner. He thinks that's very hurtful and very damaging. Quote, it sends a very clear message about where people with disabilities fall in the pecking order, he told Fairfax Media on Friday. Clearly, we fall below strong lobbyists. Yeah, I don't blame you, uh, Graham Inns. It's it's appalling. Uh, And like a lot of other people, I started kicking off on, you know, Twitter as you do, because that's how you change anything in this bloody world, is you get angry on Twitter. Uh, I suggested maybe we needed a commissioner for other things that were were annoying, like people overtaking on the inside lane. Perhaps we need a, a commissioner for shirt buttons and unpaired socks, a commissioner for nasal and ear hair length regulation, because that really is disgusting. And I don't know, I'm getting to the age where I have to be concerned about this sort of thing. And I'm thinking I'm becoming one of those problem people that is going to have to 
face the commissioner for nasal and ear hair length regulation. So I kicked that off. I started hashtagging them, all the commissioners, and oh, within about an hour, it was a trending topic on Twitter. So yeah, KPIs achieved. Rock on. On a more serious note, we've been enjoying, or or at least Australians of a political blood sports persuasion have been enjoying, Sarah Ferguson's TV documentary series The Killing Season about the Labor Party's machinations in sacking Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister, replacing him with Julia Gillard, and then later sacking her and putting Kevin Rudd back in. Um, I will say whoever edited this series, I want to marry them. It Textbook stuff in how to put together a political television documentary. That said, it's definitely one for the cognoscenti. Um, one one line in it, for example, says, there was no Curabilly-style agreement. Well, that assumes a shitload of political cultural literacy, like a Curabilly-style agreement. If you know deep Australian party politics, you'll get that, but it means nothing to the average viewer. Um, though it is pleasing in a documentary to hear People using the word rat fuckers, because, of course, Kevin Rudd once uh, said of the Chinese delegation uh, to the Copenhagen Climate Convention, the Chinese are rat fucking us. Or was it something that's getting in our way? The rat fuckers. I don't know. It's great. So it's it's wonderful to hear rat fuckers being referred to in prime time television. Uh, And speaking of Prime Ministers, Crusader Rabbit certainly ramped things up this week. Let's step through, for starters, his latest video message posted just this weekend. As we enter the final sitting week before the winter recess, the government is getting on with delivering our plan for a strong, prosperous economy and a safe, secure Australia. Getting on with delivering... How successful that's been, another question, but watch those words, safe and secure Australia. The past week has been a week of achievement for the Australian people. Last Monday, the Parliament passed the Small Business Tax Cut, an instant asset write-off. Our jobs and small business package is about recognising and rewarding Australia's two million small businesses. On Tuesday, we secured Senate support for our plan to make pensions fairer and more sustainable. And under this plan, 170,000 pensioners with modest assets will receive an extra $30 a fortnight from January 2017. Notice how he mentions the pensioners with modest assets who get a pension increase and doesn't exactly mention the pensioners with plenty of assets who are going to lose their pension. On Wednesday, we signed the free trade agreement with China This will benefit everyone by adding billions of dollars and thousands of new jobs to our economy. That's right. A free trade agreement changes the entire flow of money, but everybody's a winner, boys and girls. Everybody's a winner. And on Thursday, the government launched a white paper on northern development, setting out our plan for jobs, investment and infrastructure in northern Australia over the next 20 years. That's right. Infrastructure where nobody is and there's no real investment in infrastructure in our cities that are bursting at the seams. Uh, That's a good one. Also, it's intriguing that a report on Northern Australia only mentions climate change in the context of, well, there's some climate change funding we could use as part of this. 
Um, no concept that climate change might change the climate in this climactically difficult place. Good work. This week, the government will introduce legislation to strip citizenship from dual nationals who fight with terrorists. On this, there is a fundamental difference between the government and the Labor Party. Labor's shadow Attorney-General says about foreign fighters that you should get them back here. Yes, get them back here to face a criminal trial to establish beyond reasonable doubt that they have actually committed crimes so heinous they don't just lose their uh, freedom for a while and go to jail, they lose every single right they ever had as an Australian citizen. Also, there's some evidence to suggest that if you bring some of these folks back who tell uh, the others in Australia how actually shitty it is being part of Islamic State, that you reduce the number of people who are interested in going. No, no, no. The rabbit government wants to turn them into some kind of martyrs as well. That should help the uh, caliphate. Well, this government is doing everything it can to keep these terrorists out of Australia. Uh, alleged terrorists, Tony. They haven't actually been convicted of a terrorism crime yet. If you fight with terrorists or plot against Australia and are a dual national, you should forfeit your Australian citizenship. It's a simple principle, and one that Australians overwhelmingly support. Yes, who needs a fair and well-thought-through criminal justice system when you've got a fucking focus group? As well, in the coming week, I'll be giving further details about the government's work to strengthen our defence force and prepare it for the future. This government is working hard to deliver the stronger Australia that we all want. With the uh, clear closing point being to remind people that Australia is actually weak and vulnerable and, and Daddy Tony will make strong laws to protect you along with our favourite daddy, the Attorney-General. I also want to draw your attention to what the rabbit said in a speech yesterday, on Saturday, a speech to the New South Wales Liberal Party State Council. Now, I don't have a recording of that speech, so some of Tony Abbott's key words will be read by me while I crash and stumble my way through the undergrowth. I think that's a metaphor. We will keep this country safe, and keeping our country safe starts with keeping our borders secure, and that is exactly what this government has done, that is exactly what this government will always do. Increasingly, I'm starting to get the idea that Australia wants to see itself as, I don't know, a gated community. As long as you have a wall and a guard, all of the nasty things in the world are someone else's problem. I'm wondering how psychologically this connects up with Australia's housing boom. Now, I want to make it absolutely crystal clear where the government stands. If you go to Syria or Iraq to fight with a terrorist army, you are committing <coughs> the modern form of treason. <laughs> the modern form of treason is apparently not a crime that you have to be found guilty of by a court of law, but a crime that a minister can just assert that you have committed and that's the end of the matter. A modern crime, modern treason. Uh, and Tony, of course, wanted to 
blame Labor for getting it wrong, uh, he reckons Labor gets it wrong in three ways. Their first position was it was dog whistling. Their second position was that they supported it in principle, but courtesy of the Shadow Attorney General, they now have a third position, which is if that you go to Syria or Iraq to join a terrorist army, we want you back, we want you back here, and they say they'll put you on trial. Well, fair enough, but we all know the perils of that. Yes, the perils of a properly constituted criminal justice system. Can't have any of that. Oh, no. They might disagree with the minister. I know what the Australian people are thinking. They do not want terrorists loose on our streets. They do not want people who've been fighting with terrorist armies loose on our streets. And this government will do everything we humanly can do to ensure that that never happens. Uh, Tony's not finished with Labor yet. He's got a few more complaints. Repetitive complaints. Weak on border security, weak on national security, and weak on budget security. What we saw this week was something that I never, ever thought I would live to see. You learn never to be surprised in this business. You learn that all sorts of things that you thought were absolutely impossible can, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, come true. I saw something absolutely remarkable this week, which I never thought any of us would live to see. The Greens being more economically responsible than the Labor Party. There's a pattern emerging here that I'm starting to find really, really disturbing. Crusader Rabbit has spotted the fact that he polls well when he's doing national security stuff. And that's not about him in particular. It's just that the punters do tend to like a strong leader who takes charge in the face of danger. Wartime leaders poll well. But because Mr. Boxing and Battleline's whole brain is wired for combat and nothing else, like he can't do politics unless it's attacking an enemy, real or manufactured, he's turning the entire process of Australia's policy development in the face of a continually changing world into a political battle against the dread opponent, the Labour Party. And, well, you know, it is the first job of a Prime Minister to ensure his own party's re-election. But in this insular, pollard, focus group driven world of Canberra, everything is just grist for the re-election party mill. Separation of powers? A fair criminal justice system? Truth, honest and democracy? You know, they're all weaknesses. A peril. A peril. No, we have a government that is so utterly pig-ignorant of the big themes of politics, the centuries of fighting against despots and dictators. Uh, and, and well, well, I'm reminded of something I said in the 9pm Team Australia nearly a year ago in the context of Godwin's Law. I don't think our government is actually run by sinister Nazis. Well, not Nazis anyway. They, said they don't have the dress sense for starters. They just seem to be stupid. They don't seem to understand anything about history or culture or long-term politics. It's just this insane stop the boats, axe the tax, ditch the witch. I'm scared shitless by it. 
That's just uh, a small snippet of what was quite a lengthy ramble. I just listened back to it then while editing the podcast and went, ooh, okay, I can't really create the flavour of this. But my fear is simply this, that in the short term, even daily focus on winning in the polls at all costs and probably through ignorance and stupidity, our government is smashing away at the very fabric of our liberal democracy with sledgehammers and they don't give a shit. And they're using an ever more centralised and socially out-of-touch message-making machine to invent things for us to be afraid of, like our own principles of fairness and due process in criminal trials, um, not to deliberately create an authoritarian state, but nevertheless putting in all the tools for creating one and removing all of the restrictions which would prevent one. I mean, like attacking a person who is simply pointing out that what you're doing is against the concept of basic human rights. Oh, that's terrible! That's party political! No, it's not. It's the human rights that we've fought a century of bloody wars to put in place, or more. Happy days. Happy days. Meanwhile, on a more cheery note, in the United States, well, well let's start at the top, shall we? Or or at least somewhere on that greasy pole leading to the top, namely American presidential candidates. I think we only need to mention Donald Trump and then laugh quietly to ourselves before moving on, don't we? So, Donald Trump, eh? (laughs) We've known for ages, too, that Hillary Clinton was running for POTUS, and enough has been said about her chances, I think. No, what intrigues me is that the Republicans are trumping Clinton too with Bush 3. Yes, Jeb Bush. John Ellis, nickname it Jeb Bush. Yes, Jeb is just his initials. And before we start talking about Jeb himself, I wish to draw the world's attention to the precise degree of anger I feel towards the ignorant fucktards who say, but if Jeb stands for John Ellis Bush, then Jeb Bush is really John Ellis Bush Bush. Yes, you ignorant fucktards, you really should be herded into some sort of narrow canyon downstream from a a volcano that's not quite active yet, but you know it will be any day now, and chain them all there with a single plate of rancid dog food to fight over until the last finally flows and burns their flesh. Uh, Can't you people see the goddamn quote marks there? Haven't you ever seen the convention of writing a person's formal given name, then their nickname in quote marks, and then their family name? John Ellis, quote Jeb, unquote Bush. Haven't you ever seen that done as just their nickname and then the family name? without the formal given names even being mentioned at all? Oh, you have seen that. So why is it any different for Jeb Bush, you goddamn stupid, dim-witted cunts? Moving on, um, here's a list of some of Jeb's political views from the site ontheissues.org, um, and it shows that... Look, here's, here's some of the things Jeb Bush has said that he wants to restrict abortions to uh, victims of incest, rape and strictly health-related reasons. 
1985, he said that the Contra Freedom Fighters' cause was noble and just. Yeah, that didn't turn out to be quite correct, did it? Uh, During his term as governor of Florida, the state budget grew by 27%. Not exactly a small government act there. Um, He's a big fan of Touchdown Jacksonville, which is about bringing pro football to Florida. He's described himself in September 2004 as a, I'm a hang-em-by-the-neck conservative. He said in 2007, we are not safe, not in our homes, not anywhere. And in 2000, he said he wanted fewer death row appeals and faster executions. He also thinks that uh, having supper with your kids keeps them away from drugs and booze. And and yet when you see all that, he tosses in comments like, well, in support of immigration, he says people come to the US illegally because there's no legal path to come. Immigration is not a felony, but an act of love and that immigrants are an engine of economic vitality. And, and he's also against corporate corruption. So, you know, I, I don't know what to make of Jeb Bush, apart from him being a, a populist would clueless marketing perhaps i mean a slogan jeb bush america deserves better i think it does but i do find his name fascinating not for the reason those uh, aforementioned fucktards think but just the word jeb 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 the other day i tweeted that if i'd had the time i'd record a bunch of random people saying jeb and assemble those samples into an amusing song. And perhaps you could record a few George and W, W samples. You know, you make bass and rhythm tracks out of them. Have something go, Jeb, 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 George. And you just kind of repeat that until the heat death of the universe happens. Uh, a couple of minutes after I tweeted that, Bearded Geek started sending me videos of them saying Jeb. Like Adam Thomas. Jeb! And Geordie Guy. Jeb! So, you know, yesterday I had a little time. Jeb! And this happened. Jeb! 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 Yeah, maybe not so much, but the more I thought about it, actually, it's more of a frog noise, isn't it? Jeb! Jeb! Jeb, 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 jeppity, jeb, jeb, jeppity, jeppity, jeb, jeb, splash. A snarky platypus thought that the theme from Shaft might work as a campaign song, seeing America needs to be saved from itself. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? Jeb! You're damn right. But I can't really see Jeb Bush and Black Dick in the same image. Actually, I can, but it's a different kind of program entirely. My suggestion is Queen's theme for the movie Flash Gordon. Yes. Okay, you tried doing a Freddie Mercury high falsetto note with the word like Jeb. It's really hard and I've got a kind of sore throat too. So you do the song better, okay? But I think Queen's theme works well for this because at one point they describe the protagonist as King of the Impossible. He's for every one of us. Stand for every one of us. He's for every one of us. He's for every one of us. 
Jeb, king of the impossible, he's for every one of us. Jeb, Jeb, I love you, but we only have 14 hours to save the earth. How funny would it be with Jeb as POTUS, you begin by playing that grand national anthem of the United States of America. And then you introduce Jeb, Jeb. For four years, do it, America, do it for the lulls. Um, possibly I need a Valium now. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to the Edict. Things we won't be talking about today include the young American whack job racist cunt who wrote a manifesto explaining how he was a racist cunt and then shot dead nine black people pretty much saying it was because they were black and then the media saying we'll never know what motivated him, the turds, but we will talk about the Dalai Lama or as I prefer to call him, the Bono of Buddhism. Why? Because he, he really just does this whole kind of tour circuit, doesn't he? And I'm intrigued that people put him on a pedestal as an example of enlightenment when he's the, quote, spiritually, unquote, appointed leader of an utterly uh, male-dominated autocratic society. He's one of the world's last dictators. I was amused uh, by the fact that uh, the Dalai Lama was up here in the Blue Mountains uh, not all that long ago, a couple of weeks ago. This is why I'm mentioning it. And uh, he, you know, he was doing his you know, book signing tours or whatever it is that he does. And after the event was all over, apparently it was very difficult to get a taxi. As I may have mentioned once before, there's only 23 taxis in the entire Upper Blue Mountains. Um, but some of the people who had attended uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's uh, event balked at the idea of two to two and a half hours train journey back to the airport to fly back from Sydney to whatever squalid little hellhole they came from, probably Turak in Melbourne or something, and, like, took a cab from the Blue Mountains to the airport. I'm told it's a, it's a couple hundred dollars uh, as a cab fare. Uh, rather than catch the train, I don't think they've quite managed to let go of concerns about the material plane there, have they? I wish to point out, uh, because this question did come up on Twitter the other day, that I have never, never interfered with a Pope. This podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and your subscriptions and one-off contributions, either in the form of money or in the form sometimes of a case of wine, which does prove to be beneficial in, in a large number of ways. This episode, it's thanks and welcome to new schooner-level subscribers Shane Perris and Glenn Anderson. Thank you very much to both of you. It's much appreciated. It's, uh, you know, the ongoing subscriptions really do help. Uh, and if, if you're new to listening to the podcast and ha haven't got your head around the, uh, how this works, this is like the uh, public radio brackets US or community radio brackets Australia model. The podcast is available free for you because I care about you and love you in ways that are probably best that you never find out about. Um, but... 
If you would like to return the favour in some way, that's always appreciated. So we have subscriptions. You can make one-off contributions also. Uh, and there are various inducements from time to time. So what have we got? Look, go, there, there's a website where you can look this up. There will be some interesting stuff coming up over the next week for the last week of this financial year. So the last week of June and then into the first week of July, I'm kicking off a couple of things. You'll find out about them in a couple of days. If you want to get on the bandwagon now, you will still be eligible for any inducements which I might care to offer you from time to time, go to the Skank Media website, skank.com.au slash subscribe to subscribe, skank.com.au slash tip to make a one-off contribution, and I will love you long time. (coughs) Elephant stamp time! Elephant stamp time! Each episode of this podcast, I give elephant stamps of approval to people who have been exceptional in the category of thinking i have four to give out today two internationally two in australia so oh god look at the time i better power through these the first one goes to the united states of america and in particular the u.s office of personnel management which has recently if you've seen this in the news you'll know this already been hacked from arsehole to breakfast time probably by china and the bad guys have possibly got away with massive amounts of information about American government employees holding security clearances, including, perhaps, the deeply personal information they put on their forms to apply for top-secret clearance. The elephant stamp in particular goes to whoever decided to outsource some of the database work to people in Argentina and in China. To quote a report at Ars Technica, link on the website, two of these systems administrators in those agencies, uh, those nations rather, had direct access to every row of data in every database. They were the administrative users. Other personnel who led database teams had Chinese passports, and the person Telling that to Ars Technica knew that because they were the one who challenged them personally and revoked their privileges. Elephant stamp to the US Office of Personnel Management. The second elephant stamp, the second international one, goes to the Republic of Korea. And in particular, it's rather challenging education system, which puts massive demands on students. Uh, Here's a snippet of a report from ABC Television's foreign correspondent um, explaining some of the stuff that is done in Korea. The country may be booming, but what's all this pressure doing to the kids? Cha Gil Yung looks every bit the K-pop star, sharing the limelight with South Korea's biggest idols, inspiring students as they're about to take their make or break final exams.
the lyrics to that song are even when sleep as sweet as candy tempts you, fight it, endure it, you can't fail, give it all, fantastic marks and the uni you've dreamed of, miracle is getting closer, give it all. Yes, that's right. Homer Simpson may have said, sleep is for the weak. South Korea has that as official policy. The cram school has five floors with 20 classrooms on each. There are regular patrols to make sure they all stay awake and that conditions are perfect for studying. The room had most of these kids falling asleep, like face down onto the desk, your actual head desk. And one of the teachers slowly walking across each row behind them, massaging their shoulders to gently wake them up. It was insane. Even one of the students on his way to the cram class, he's watching more lecture videos on his phone. And the lecture videos are sort of full of gimmicks to keep the kids engaged. You know, they're wearing um, medieval armour or something. And there's a whole star system related to this. In education obsessed South Korea, Cha is a top-ranked maths teacher. And here, that makes him a celebrity with an annual income of $8 million. So the system's turning out lots of really well-educated students, but it comes at a massive price. South Korea has the highest rate of suicide in the world. It's growing the fastest among 10 to 19-year-olds. It's an absolutely fascinating bit of television from Matthew Carney and uh, the foreign correspondent team. Watch it. It's... it. It's just amazing. Link on the podcast website, of course. But an elephant stamp to South Korea because do you really want to be doing this to your people? I mean, I get the whole economic miracle thing, but I don't know whether you're going to end up with whole people uh, at the end of this process. Okay, the, the next two elephant stamps come back to Australia. And the first of these two goes to... Well, SBS News, but kind of Australian Associated Press before that for the headline, Housewives Using Ice to Be Super Mum. Or so says Assistant Health Minister Fiona Nash. Um, And this is a direct quote from her. Ice does not discriminate. It is old people, young people, wealthy people, people not well off. They are tradesmen, housewives taking risks to be super mum. Um... I suppose that uh, Fiona Nash really ought to be uh, hit with the clue stick for just citing this stuff without actual, you know, where's the evidence that this is a like an actual category of people, the the methed up super mum. But AAP and then SBS run it with a fact. All right, it's attributed in the in the headline, but you know we, we're seeing people swallow this ice epidemic thing as part of the ice scourge rhetoric of uh, the federal government and Crusader Rabbit, the figures don't show that this is actually a thing. And so I'm wondering whether methed up super mums is a thing. I think it's not. Elephant stamp of approval to you. And the final elephant stamp goes to Australia's favourite Attorney General, 
Senator the Honourable George Soapy the Ankle uh, Brandis QC for sitting in a Senate estimates hearing when someone's giving evidence and he just sits back and opens a book of poetry to read. He explained this remarkable behaviour on ABC Radio National Drive. Mark Kenny from Fairfax has published a story saying, or a piece saying, that some of your colleagues want you dumped, that you're likely to be dumped, and that you're spending too much time reading poetry in Senate estimates. I'm, I'm not a commentator, Patricia. Well, can you at least elaborate on your poetry habit, which I'm, I'm, you know that I have an interest in. I do like that you read poetry. Is it appropriate that you read it in Senate estimates? Well, uh, Patricia, um, I was listening to what was going on in Senate estimates uh, and uh, for six days I spent my time doing work, as all ministers who are efficient do, uh, while I listened to what was going on in Senate estimates and responded fully to every question asked of me. After six days I'd run out of work uh, because it, it had all been done. So um, uh, I glanced at, um, at, at a book. As long as uh, the minister at the table keeps uh, pays attention to what is being said at Senate estimates, as I was doing, not impossible to look at a book and, and listen to questions being asked. It's very easy, in fact, uh, and responds fully to any question asked of them, as I did, then uh, I think that's um, what is expected. Yeah, look, Sophie, I kind of get where you're coming from, and I do understand that government ministers work incredibly long hours, and, you know, we can all multitask to a, a certain extent, but it looks fucking crap on the telly to see a bloke giving evidence to a Senate committee and you're sitting next to him looking at a book. It looks bad. And as a politician, Soapy, you should understand when things look bad and not do them. So today's fourth elephant stamp goes to you, sir. You, yes, you, the listener type people listening to this podcast on your podcast listening devices through your listening ears you are invited to inject your brain into the proceedings, not this episode, obviously, because it's already been recorded by the time you listen to it, but into a future one. You can do that by sending an audio comment. You can send an audio comment by either phoning me or Skyping me, and it'll be recorded on voicemail, or you can record it on your own devices and uh, contact me to work out how you're then physically going to get it to me. Details on the podcast website. Someone who has been sending comments regularly so, so that they've even become their own segment is Nicholas Fryer, living just south of Adelaide in South Australia. Here he is again. This morning, as I alighted from my train at the end of my morning commute, something was different. It had all gone quiet. Too quiet. My train's normally scheduled arrival time must nearly coincide with that of one or more other largish volume services, because the usual scene that meets my ears at 8.23am is one of busy bustle. Today, however, my train had been delayed for a few minutes by mechanical difficulties, and my first thought as I strolled from it, one of the first from the carriage, was that I'd slid into one of those episodes of quiet that the natural resonances in the oscillations of human activity periodically and quite chaotically, must deliver even to transport hubs in cities more populous than little old Adelaide. 
There's something of the cathedral about many central railway stations. In a country with architectural history as shallow as that of Australia, the major transport hub is in many cases one of the oldest buildings in the city still in use, and certainly one of the few with high vaulted ceilings and a large floor of marble flagstones. Adelaide's central station is just such, and the effect is heightened by some beautiful dark-stained wood fixtures, including pew-like benches, installed, presumably, with the same intent, to employ discomfort to remind the sinner of his failings. I adopt the masculine pronoun here, because it's always struck me that, given the differences between men and women in the parts of the body which traditionally blossom in middle age, attempts at moral improvement via the medium of the bones of one's ass is one of the few areas of life in which the girls get the easier, well, ride. Be that as it may, in that quiet moment, the concourse of Adelaide Railway Station carried something of the air of a great place of worship when not in use. The bright, brittle light of a sunny winter's morning speared through high windows, drawing my mind and eyes upward, away from the human realm. Empty of passengers or parishioners, echoing with the absence of liturgy, one could yet feel the presence of something invisible. In such spaces... Each of us feels their own version of imminence, I suppose. A sense of the presence of, what, history? Industry? The power of the throng, yearning and striving and fearing together? The power of an idea to shape, indeed twist, the world? Perhaps the power of the city, thrumming along wires and roads and railway lines? Or perhaps what one is given a chance to access as the dust motes dance in the slanting sun is that thing most simple and yet most complex, infinite in size, but thin as an onion skin, the present, that soap-bubble membrane whose pop separates the merely potential from the shockingly immutable. In that moment I registered the second strange feature of the concourse, which was that it was more or less awash with uniformed police officers. Because I'm no longer in my twenties, I didn't immediately conduct a mental audit of my activities over the last forty-eight hours or the contents of my backpack, to see if there was anything I needed to be ready to deny or dispose of. I simply raised an eyebrow, which I do rather well. In fact, since Leonard Nimoy's most recent death, I flatter myself I'm without serious rivals in that regard. Because the train to my home passes through some of Adelaide's more robustly working-class suburbs, before reaching the leafy exurb in which I'm pleased to ignore the world's pressing social issues, I'm used to seeing one or two police officers in or around the train particularly on those occasions when work keeps me back past the traditional cocktail hour and I have to catch the late-night southbound unexpress. On every such occasion I eye, nervously, the exposed handgun that South Australian police children these days absurdly wear as a matter of routine and recall the only time I've ever seen one drawn. Something like twenty years ago I was arriving by foot at Adelaide Railway Station when a police car screamed to a halt in front of me. Two male officers even back then looking strangely young, leapt from the car and sprinted towards the station entrance ramp, drawing their revolvers and holding them out, straight-armed at shoulder height. Electing not to follow them, I sat on a nearby wall and was thus well-placed to see the same pair of civic defenders return up the ramp at a much more measured pace some minutes later. I recall that as I watched their faces, I saw honest relief give way to a subtly testosterone-tinged disappointment as they regained their vehicle and resigned themselves to an evening of tedious paperwork without the compensation of getting to shoot someone. In any event, coppers after nightfall are one thing, but to be surrounded by them on the way to work is something else. 
One of them, a woman about the age my mother was when she died, was waving to me, trying to draw my attention. Behind her, a row of midnight blue uniforms stood in poses of tense readiness. In front of them stood a silverware-bedecked officer, her hand raised as if preparing to give a signal. All at once, the officer with her back to me dropped her hand. There was a flash of golden sparks as sunlight hit metal, and the station rang with the unmistakable opening notes of the theme to The Simpsons, as rendered by a swinging sextet from the South Australian Police Brass Band. The woman, who looked a bit like my mum, pressed a neighbourhood watch pamphlet into my hand. I laughed aloud with pure delight, laughed long and ridiculously hard, trying to sign a wordless apology to her for my own absurdity. In the hours since, I've mused much on that moment. I've thought about the desperate preciousness and fragility of the mutual trust that makes us a society rather than a mob, and the threats to that trust from those who should know better. I've thought about the privilege I enjoy as a middle-aged white man to see the police not as a menace, but as my likely allies against the inconveniences, and worse, of modern life. I've thought about other people for whom Australians in uniform mean not protection, but hopelessness and hate. I've also thought about the future, and how actions I contemplate from the comfy isolation of now may have consequences lasting generations. But mostly, because I'm middle-aged and not a little bit narcissistic and complacent, I've thought about which character in The Simpsons I'm most like. Decided that it's probably Marge, and that I'm just going to have to live with that, and that I probably can. Nicholas Fryer brings this episode of the 9pm Edict to a close. You can find him on Twitter, at Nicholas Fryer. Why not get in touch? Send him some opinions, views, compliments, degrading statements. The next episode of the 9pm Edict will be on Monday, the 29th of June. If you'd like to contribute to the program before then, you can do so in the ways that I mentioned earlier. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Have a great life. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.